This is Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast devoted to the TV we're obsessed with. And right now, we're watching The Expanse. I'm Jonathan Gitlin, and with me is Annalie Newitz. And next up, we have Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank, who are the authors of the books under the pen name James S.A. Corey, and also the screenwriters for the TV show. Hi, Annalie. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. How's it going? Uh, not too bad. Thank you. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed season one. Yeah, I just rewatched the entire season, you know, just sort of mainlined it. And um, I picked up on so much stuff rewatching it that I hadn't caught the first time, which is a really good sign. It really holds up under scrutiny. Can you give me some examples? I must confess, I've only watched a couple of the episodes from season one again. You know, I think the thing that really stood out for me watching it again was how well put together the, for lack of a better term, exopolitics or planet planetary politics were. I know a lot of people have trouble with the idea that the UN has become some sort of sinister government organization. And leaving that aside, uh, the thing that I thought was well conceived was thinking about what kinds of new alliances would be formed after people had been living on other worlds for long enough that cultures started to kind of diverge. You know, there were just a lot of like, intricacies and the conspiracies and the relationships that I hadn't picked up on the first time. And I certainly hadn't picked up on the way that corporations were kind of bound up with the UN, which maybe I'm just a sloppy watcher <laughs> the first time. I hadn't really realized the extent to which the series was about how business interests are kind of corrupting these governments of these planets. Right. I mean, you have you know, Earth and its entrenched corporations that are out to get what they can from the belt. And then, as you say, you have these societies that emerge out there, you know, living on rocks and spaceships, who are the new powerless. They're the new powerless. And then, you know, there's Luna, where I'm not sure if Luna has political autonomy from Earth, but that's where the corporation is based that's sort of doing this nefarious science experiment that's at the core of the series that's sort of turning people into weird glowing vomit zombies. Then there's Mars, which we're going to be seeing a lot more of in season two, which is really exciting. And Mars has its own weird culture, which is sort of based around, you know, an almost evangelical belief in this future Mars that no one alive is going to see, which is going to be a green Mars with lots of water on it and breathable atmosphere and things like that. And it's a really Spartan culture, very devoted to deprivation, but also war. And it's interesting to see how the different, like, they're not really nations. I mean, right. <laughs> how these different sort of planetary... It's civilizations. Sort of, yeah, civilizations or post-nations um, are, are jockeying for resources. And, you know, what does it mean when one group, like the Belters, are really kind of the ash can of the entire system and at the same time are producing most of the raw materials, both for terraforming on Mars and for space travel for people on Earth? what kind of politics developed there in the belt. And that was just all that stuff I thought was really well conceived and clearly had been thought out ahead of time in the novels. And it just really uh, held together well. You mentioned the novels there. And obviously, so for people who are new to the series, The Expanse is a series of books, which are now being turned into a TV show, telling the same general story, but in a slightly different way, which I, I remember was something I had a little bit of difficulty getting to grips with as a huge fan of the novels, first watching the show. But after talking to the show's creators, it seems that's a conscious decision to tell the same kind of story, but in a different way. As someone who's also read the first book, certainly. I mean, are you enjoying the differences there? I really like the differences. I think they work really well. And like you, I've talked to the writers, and this is a really unusual television show in that 
the authors of the original novels are in the writer's room uh, for the TV series having a huge impact on the show. And so you can be sure that this is a show, it's coming from the same minds, and it's sort of their TV cut of the story. And that's kind of how I think of it. It's, it's mm-hmm. the TV cut. It's not even necessarily an adaptation. And I really loved their decision to bring characters forward who hadn't been featured as much in the first book. Like Christian is not even really in the first book at all. One thing I miss about Christian Avsarilara is the fact that she doesn't swear in the TV shows. Because in the book, obviously, she, she swears like a trooper. Yeah, and that is, that's a big part of her character. She's still tough as nails yep. in the series, but we don't get that sense of her kind of profane side. But we do get lots of other great characters. I'm curious who your favorite characters are and what your favorite arcs were for them last season, just to catch people up on some of the cool developments with the characters. I think seeing Holden, who's the captain of the ship, realize he's in charge of a bunch of people who depend on him and the way he's matured into that role, I think has been quite interesting. So having read the books, because I'm so much further along there, the characters are mainly much earlier into their character arcs, obviously in the TV show, because we've only seen one season. I'm still kind of waiting for some of them to grow into the roles that, that I know them for from the books, if that makes any sense. Totally. You're in that horrible space of knowing too much before you just know too much you can't necessarily appreciate the characters um, I, well, I think seeing how some of the characters are slightly different to the way i imagine them in the books i mean i think amos he, he's the the actor who plays him I, I think is probably nothing like how i pictured the character but i think he's been very engaging yeah i like the relationship that we start to see developing between holden and miller which happens in the books as well and in the final episodes of last season, they finally get together and it's it's sort of perfect because they're both kind of dicks and both have an idealistic side, mm-hmm. except that, of course, I think Holden is suffering from maybe being too idealistic and Miller is having to kind of relearn his idealism. And so it was, it was great to see them interact. The show does a really good job, I think, of portraying Miller as a not very good cop at the end of his career. And he's kind of forgotten why he's supposed to do what he does. He's lost his spark. Yeah, he's actually a good cop. He's just not a very motivated cop. I think he is a good cop. He's he's a dirty cop. It seems like any cop in the belt would have to be dirty because there's no real law and order, as we see, because everyone's sort of either bought off by the corporation or they're bought off by the union. But his ability to figure out what happened to Julie Mao, I think, is supposed to show that he actually is a good investigator. Uh, he, he's oh, figured- sure, he has the skills, but I mean, he, you know, you, his life is, is in ruins and, you know, no yeah, one, no one a- wants to work with him. He's the guy they partner up. up with in Eartha. That's right. And that was another thing that I think was really interesting about last season. And this goes back to the issues around the sort of planet states is who counts as a native in this story and the natives of the belt obviously are creating a separatist movement and are trying to get some autonomy and some power to negotiate with Mars and Earth. And there's all this tension around, you know, who's really a belter and is is Miller even really a belter? Because of course he hasn't been exposed to low gravity and so he's sort of a pseudo-earther. Mm-hmm. And then there's Holden, who of course is an Earther, but he's become the symbol for the belters and julie mao is another person like that who's from earth she's from privilege but she's taken up with the belters and with their separatist cause and so that just becomes for a lot of the characters that 
becomes a big issue is where did they come from and what kind of stake do they have in the future of the belt? That's a, a question that gets raised as well with um, one of the other characters who's a, a Martian, Alex, who's the pilot. And people are constantly dissing him for being a Martian. And that, that comes up even more in season two because we kind of get to know Mars better. And so it's a little bit of an obvious allegory for ethnicity or national identity on Earth. But at the same time, it's not a perfect fit. There's no way to say, oh, this group represents this group on Earth. You know, there's no clear analogy. And right. I like that. I like that it's clearly something different. It's clearly not a situation we've ever had on Earth before, but it, it has little elements that we can recognize. And the other thing I was going to say is purely in a moment of fandom, Naomi Nagata is totally my favorite character. And can we just have her all the time forever? Is that possible? Having read five <laughs> or maybe six books now. Yes, she does keep showing up. So Okay, think, good. Thank you there. for that um, reassurance. I think my favorite character that we didn't get to see a huge amount of was Anderson Dawes, who's one of the OPA bigwigs. And he's played by Jared Harris who uses the most amazing belter patois. So one of the things that has actually, I think, been done even better in the TV show than the books is this, you know, this new language that's evolving out in the belt. And he delivers this, you know, it's a mix of Asian languages and European languages and future slang. Uh, and he delivers it in this multicultural London English accent, the sort of thing you'd hear on the bus where I grew up, which I think is just that juxtaposition of the weird belter slang and that accent. And the idea that, you know, everyone in the belt, you know, you grow up on a, on a ship with 20 people, you know, you probably have have a different accent to someone who lives on a space station that you know has six million people living on it. Yeah, it's super interesting. I, I also really love that we hear the patois and that we hear different people you know, kind of slipping in and out of it, which is also something that you see on Earth all the time when people grow up speaking a patois or some kind of local version of English and then they can sort of code switch into you know mainstream English. And he's a great character. He's also super interesting because he's the OPA guy who seems like he kind of is on the side of not burning everything down. There's sort of the extremist OPA folks who are like, wreck it all. He's trying to forge a bit of an alliance maybe with Miller. He's a slippery character. I mean, we don't really know what his motives are, but I'm sort of hoping that he sticks around because he's the one OPA person who seems to not be completely blisteringly insane. So and that seems good for the future of the belt. <laughs> There's something you touched on there, which is, you know, the how many factions there are within the belters, within the OPA. As we've seen in season one, there are different factions playing out their own game on, on Earth and through the UN. There are complicated plots to watch in this show, I think. Yeah, and there's none of that kind of Star Wars crap where it's just like, there's the rebels and then there's the Empire and they're all kind of one and the same. Except in Rogue One, where I think actually in Rogue One, we start to understand that the rebels are not kind of a unified group. But in The Expanse, there's never that kind of fake feeling that you know a group of people or even a group of rebels are all on the same side or all have the same needs or desires. And so this uprising that we're seeing in the belt, the OPA uprising, yeah, it's all different things. And part of it is incredibly corrupt. Like when we see in the final episodes of the season, when finally it's Eros is the station, right? Where mm -hmm. they're just turning everybody into, into goo. Proto-molecule. Pro 
goop. When they're blasting everyone with radiation and, and making them merge into the, the proto-molecule goo, we see that, that the OPA are also connected with these thugs who are, I mean, they're gangs, basically, and they mm-hmm. come in and, and they just act as fake police on the station. And so those people are partly hired by the corporation, but they're also kind of weirdly connected with the OPA. And so we get this really rich sense that there's no pure, clean politics here. There's no hero who's untainted. And of course, there's no bad guy who's who's completely bad, except, well, there might be a couple completely horrible bad guys, but certainly the good guys are all shades of gray. I'm going to be very curious to see the transition on this show from, you know, a fairly bleak look at humans trying to live in our solar system to then kind of, you know, a grander space opera across the stars, which I think is where we're headed. Read the books, people. Read the books. And speaking of reading the books, you have uh, the authors of the books here next, right? I do. had a great interview recently with Ty Frank and Dan Abrams, who are the creators of the book. And as you said, also screenwriting the the TV show. Thanks for agreeing on pretty short notice. Nothing easier to talk us into than uh, talking about ourselves. So I have to confess, I, I am a, a huge fan. I've been a massive fan of the books, and, and I think the TV show is, is also awesome. Um, and we have several other big fans at ours. So we're quite excited about doing a podcast. And who doesn't want to spend an hour of their day listening to people talk about belters? So to get started, it, it seems like we're in a bit of a golden age when it comes to belter fiction right now. I mean, obviously thinking back a while, there was, you know, the Red Mars series, but more recently books like Aurora and Seventies, and then obviously The Expanse. But I'm correct in thinking that the the idea for the expanse was originally it was originally supposed to be a game, correct? Yeah, it was. It was That's tie. It was originally supposed to be a pitch for a a science fiction MMO, mm-hmm. and I did a lot of work getting that pitch ready. It never really went anywhere because the people who asked us to pitch to them suddenly discovered that it cost a hundred million dollars to make an MMO, and they <laughs> they quietly backed away. But you know, I saw I had all this stuff, and I kept I kept playing around with it after that. And you guys had a, like a tabletop RPG that you worked with to kind of refine some of the ideas. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I had all this material and nothing to do with it. So you know, I've always been a gamer, so I started using it as a background for running pen and paper games in, mm-hmm. and I, I ran a couple different ones in the setting. That's where I came into it. I was introduced to the universe by playing in one of Ty's tabletop games. And I got into it and saw that he had done all of this world building and all of this prep work and and had answers to any question I came up with. And, you know, I knew how to write a book. He had done all the hard part about building a world. So we kind of just put the two together. How long did that whole world building process take? Are we we talking months, years? Well, I mean, it, it was an accretion. Obviously, I did a bunch of it in the front when I was working on the pitch for the game. But after that, I'm kind of a, a astronomy nerd, and I, I love sort of local astronomy, our solar system. So as I would learn new things, I would go, oh, that would be interesting in this setting. And I would sort of just add another page to my document about you know what Ganymede looks like or what Io looks like and what things might be on those moons or planets. And so you know, I mean, it slowly grew over time, over the course of, I guess, years, I think we worked on the MMO pitch in, I, I don't know, it wasn't too long after 9-11, so it was like early, early, early 2000s. And then we didn't publish Leviathan until 2011, so there's... Yeah, so probably, it might have been a decade in the making. Right. You can probably tell, actually, from the from the depth of the world that there is that much effort behind it. Well, I have a fantastic memory for useless information, mm-hmm. uh, so uh, nothing more useless than a game setting. So, of course, I was accumulating gigantic amounts of, or 
using up a gigantic amount of memory space for it. Can we talk a little bit about some, some of the inspirations that, that went into that? From both of you. Well, for the original game pitch, uh, really my biggest inspiration was a, a book called uh, The Stars My Destination by Alfred Bester. Mm -hmm. The game and that book resemble each other almost not at all, but there was this background thing happening in that book that was not the most important part of the book. But in the background, Earth and Mars were fighting a war with the outer planets, sort of, you know, the, the moons of Jupiter and, and Saturn. And there were these people who are living in the asteroid, these crazy people living in the asteroid belt that will wind up coming into the story. And just that, that setting stuck in my head. I think I read that when I was like 11 or 12. And that setting stuck in my head and I've just been fascinated by that ever since. So that was really the biggest early influence on it. It almost feels like there's kind of elements of the Grapes of Wrath in there at times as well. You know, I, I will have to trust you on that. They gave me the, eighth, the Grapes of Wrath in eighth grade and I was never able to get through it. Yeah, it was, it was one of those books that was forced on us in high school as well. I did actually read it, but That's, it was probably about eighth grade. So yeah. it was probably about the eighth grade. <laughs> Evidently something stuck subliminally. <laughs> you know, we get a lot of credit for being better read and more widely influenced than we actually are. Uh, a lot of folks have seen real clear connections in our work to things that we have only not read but not necessarily heard of. Yeah, we, I read all the time online. People go, well, clearly they were massively influenced by X. this book. And and not and like Daniel said, not only will I not have read that book, I sometimes haven't ever heard of that book. It's a great way to get some <laughs> stuff on your, your reading list, though. I found some great historians and kind of literary theorists who I would never have heard of if I had not been influenced by them. <laughs> So when did you guys start thinking about translating it from the page to the screen? When somebody bought it for the screen. Yeah. Oh, okay, so, so it worked that way. So you didn't go out and pitch it as a TV show. Someone came, came and optioned it? No, we were innocents. We had <laughs> yeah. we, we had no idea. For, for most of that process, Daniel and I were what uh, people in writing call luggage. Mm -hmm. Everybody else was doing things, and we just sort of came along for the ride. We found out we had a, uh, a Hollywood agent, which was something we hadn't known, and in the course of finding out that we had a Hollywood agent, we found out that he had already been fielding offers for the series. And then he eventually came to us and said, hey, I've got a couple offers that seem serious and to talk to these guys. And then that's how we wound up with the Sean Daniel Company, which was the original production company that worked on it. And then they brought in Mark and Hawk, Mark Fergus and Hawk Osby, the guys who wrote the pilot. And then the four of them, the two guys from the Sean Daniel Company and then Mark and Hawk created a pitch and a pilot script that they took out to the various studios and eventually Alcon bought it. The biggest thing that Daniel and I did is at one point we met with Mark and Hawk for a day and uh, sat in a hotel room and then later in a restaurant and talked about the series and what it was about and what the future of it was so that they could include that in their pitch. And then later when they were actually doing the pitch, they brought us along to sit quietly in the room and smile at everyone so that periodically they could point at us and say, hey, those guys wrote the books. So we were kind of just part of the dog and pony show. But unlike lots of books that get translated to the screen, you, you guys are actually screenwriters. So you, you still have quite a lot of control of what's going on, correct? We have a, an unprecedented amount of input into what's going on. And we have all of it because of the the kindness and good graces of Mark and Hawk and Narain Shankar. Yeah, we have, we have influence and no power. Yes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, Mark and Hawk and Narain are the executive writing executive producers on the show. Mm -hmm. They have all of the actual power. But as Daniel said, they were kind enough to allow us into the process and give us a lot of access and a lot of input and listen to the stuff we have to say and then, you know, make their own decisions, but at least listen to it. What's it like adapting your own work 
um, for the screen. Um, so this is something that, that um, both Annalie and I were have been kind of curious about for a while. For example, like, how do you deal with fans? And, and I have to admit, this is a sin I'm guilty of at least once. How do you deal with fans coming coming to you and saying, "Well, well, it didn't happen like that in the books." Well, it it certainly didn't. Uh, <laughs> that, that's that's absolutely true. I'm not particularly enamored of the idea of canon to begin with. Canonicity seems weird to me, given that the the word originally meant you know what was actually written by God. Yeah, that's that's a weird thing to apply to my own work. And the example I keep going back to is Batman. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen Christopher Nolan's Batman and Batman '66 and Batman and the animated series and the Brave and the Bold Batman, and they're all Batman, and they're all good pieces of work, and they're all just fine. They're all participating in the same mythos, and they're all often retelling the same story. Mm-hmm. The number of times we have seen Bruce Wayne's parents get killed. There's a whole bunch of varieties of that that none of them necessarily match up in anything but the broadest sense, but they're all the story. I guess it's a bit like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I think, which is probably yeah. how I how I made peace with kind of, you know, canon not lining up. There's a whole bunch of different versions and they're all awesome and if they don't fit together, they're adjacent. Yeah. And I think the idea that one of these versions is true, that's weird. Traveling on from there, something else that several of us are curious is, is how much you plan on changing the plots from the books. So I'm fully caught up on the novels. And it seems like there are threads that are showing up in the TV show even as early as season one, which don't get introduced in the books until much later. And I'm thinking, you know, allusions to stolen stealth material, more recently the, the sociopathic scientists, which I think showed up in, in, in the Vital Abyss novella. And, and we get, you know, glimpses of those in season two. So is, is that a case of, you know, as you've written more of these books now and you're kind of further along in the story you have ideas that you can go back and you know think well actually you know we could have we'd have introduced it here so you can do that with a tv show or actually what it is and and this was something that narain shankar our executive producer and and the showrunner for the show really pushed early on in the writer writing room and, and it's something daniel and i agree with you know he said we're not adapting books here we're adapting the entire story mm-hmm. so staying locked into the structure that the books are in, which is Leviathan Wakes told a story and it ended at this point, and Caliban's War told a different story and it ended at this point, is something we sort of just not bothered to keep track of. So, like, the first season is only about three quarters of the first book. Right. Second season will be parts of the first and second book. And included in that is if there's ancillary materials like the uh, novellas or plot threads that didn't show up until later books, but clearly in-universe were happening earlier than that in order for them to show up later... Um, there's no reason not to pull that stuff in, you know, having a Vassarala come in in the first season. I mean, she clearly existed in that universe during Leviathan Wakes. We just never talked about her. Mm-hmm. So bringing her in and showing her reaction to the events of the first book, having Bobby Draper show up a little earlier than she does in the books, having material show, you know, the churn shows up, discussions about the churn, which is one of the novellas, discussions about the scientists that you're talking about from Vital Abyss. As long as you're looking at it as one giant nine book, five novella story and you're mm-hmm. adapting that entire thing then you're free to pull from anywhere and dealing with angry nerds on twitter complaining is that just part of the price of fame yeah you know, i i always say we don't actually get paid to write we get 
we write, I, mean, I would have been writing anyway, even if I wasn't getting paid. I, I get paid to suffer the casual judgment of strangers. <laughs> and I'm, I'm good with that. It's a fine job. It's still more fun than tech support. You know, and, and you can't really get too upset with people for having too much passion for your work. If somebody can't stand the idea that the show is doing anything different from the books and refuses to watch it for that reason, I, I can't be mad at that person. They, they love the books. I mean, that's that's fine. Everybody gets to decide what I, I, I loved Lord of the Rings. I loved the series. And then when the movies came out, I loved the movies. I have friends who can't stand those movies because they are different in any way from the books. Both are valid viewpoints, I guess. Yeah, the people who actually seek us out in order to share their bad reviews of the books and the show, I may not follow them assiduously afterwards. That's uh, Oh, yeah. No, I, the Jimmy Corey Twitter handle is uh, very free with his mute and block button. I think in 2017, you have to be. You know, until somebody's paying me to listen to their problems, I don't need to listen to their problems. Yeah. Is Twitter still around in the expense? Well, Twitter gets kind of undercut when you put in enough light delay. I mean, the point of Twitter is, and of social media in general, is it's like playing a slot machine. You get immediate feedback over and over and over and over, and you get that little hit of neurotransmitter and, and your little momentary high. If you have to wait 40 minutes for a response because they're you know somewhere out in the asteroid belt and you're on Mars it loses some of its charm. It gets easier to walk away from. Although it's a, it's a medium that Holden uses to good effect. It's more like an old bulletin board system. It's more like the 80s. You remember when we, I, I, don't, I don't know how old you are. I will date myself. When we uh, had the dial-in modems and we would dial into a BBS and post stuff there and then come back the next day and see what people had responded to. It's more of that pace. Right. So there is an internet, there is networked connections, there are video feeds and all of that stuff. It just necessarily is slower mm -hmm. because, you know, light speed. Right. What are you going to do? Dealing with the issue of the you know, the fact that the, the solar system is vast, even at the speed of light, it takes quite a long time to cross it. Is that easier to deal with in the books than in the TV show? Notice that, you know, you don't have an entire episode where, you know, the rose is in transit. It is actually. And, and it, was a, it was a topic of much discussion early on. One of the first things that happened when we wrote the first season is the five of us, Daniel and I, Mark and Hawk and Noreen all got together in a, in a house and hung out for a couple of weeks, just sort of deciding how we would make the show. And there was some initial conversation about, is it possible to make a TV show with that in there, with light delay, with the fact that people don't have instantaneous communications? And, and what came out of that conversation was that the storytelling pluses that that gives you greatly outweigh the negatives. You know, one, Mark and Hawk are Hollywood writers from way back, and mm -hmm. they talked about the fact that one of the things that killed the suspense movie, you know, because they used to work in action and suspense and all that, and one of the things that killed the suspense movie for them was cell phones. That, that you, you constantly have to find reasons why people's cell phones don't work because every problem is solved by someone calling someone and instantly getting an answer. Mm -hmm. And they said one of the cool things that came out of the discussion about light delays, oh, we're back in the pre-cell phone era. You can have a problem, you can have a vital piece of information everyone needs to know and you send it out and then maybe 40 minutes later everyone gets it. And then 40 minutes after that, maybe you get an answer. And so that actually becomes part of the plotting rather than a roadblock to the plotting. Once they wrapped their heads around that idea, everybody was really on board with it. Yeah, travel time is harder 
travel time is something I think we gloss over a little bit just because, and then they spent three days going from here to there. That's hard to make dramatically interesting, but I don't think it slows us down. I don't think it stops us. Yeah. And the nice thing you have in TV is you have commercial breaks and you have episode breaks Mm -hmm. and any amount of time can happen in one of those. Yeah. So we, you know, we show people taking off from a stay station on the Rossi, we go to a commercial break, we come back, they're at wherever they were going. You can just sort of assume however many days you need you needed to happen while right. they were commercial break happens. In the books, they're not always burning at a constant one G. Mm-hmm. A lot of time in the books they're they're doing microgravity thrust or they're on the float. Uh, and we pretty much exclusively film at 1G because that's where we are. So that's a change. Okay, so I'm, I've got a, a bunch of questions from some of my colleagues on stuff. And this first one is from our space editor, Eric Berger, who knows more about space than pretty much everyone else does. And that's saying something because we are a gigantic bunch of nerds. But something Eric was curious about was why water is such a scarce resource for belters. Um, and I guess he's, he's talking about the fact that, you know, Ceres is made up of a huge amount of ice and, you know, lots of other asteroids are. And he apologizes because he hadn't read the books. Maybe right, so this is addressed in there. The big issue there is not scarcity, it's transport. I mean, if you think about it, there is no food scarcity on Earth. Mm-hmm. What there is is distribution scarcity. Right. And, and we have the same problem there. There are many asteroids that have no ice on them. And water is used not only for as a potable but um, it is also the primary uh, propellant mass Mm -hmm. for the engines, so a lot of it gets sort of sprayed out into space for that, and it's also broken down into hydrogen and oxygen to create breathable air. So you you use it for a lot of different things, and if you're on an asteroid that doesn't have its own patches of ice, somebody has to bring it to you. So all famines are political, I guess, is the... Yes. Right. Absolutely. And and one of the world building aspects of the series is that so Mars is, of course, trying to terraform. So they're trying to build oceans. Mm-hmm. So they're taking a gigantic amount of water ice from the rest of the system to create an uh, oxygen atmosphere for the planet to to build giant bodies of water like lakes and oceans. And one of the sort of world building things that we quickly hand wave past is that Mars strip mine Ceres. That was one of the first things they did is they just went and they just carved all the ice off of Ceres and carted it back to Mars. So Ceres has been stripped down to the rock and that's just part of the part of the world building. There. That actually kind of gets to, to Eric's second question, which was he was curious why the Martians haven't exerted more control over the belt. And, and I guess the answer is because they're too busy terraforming. Well, they, they have an enormous amount of influence. I mean, a major plot point in uh, the first season is that they have huge economic trade zones that they control that they can absolutely dictate who can fly through them or not. In, uh, I believe it's episode five, we follow a little uh, mining ship that has, you know, an uncle and nephew who are Mm -hmm. trying to scrape a few minerals out of a previously mined out asteroid and get rounded up by Martians and told they're not allowed to fly through their their trade zone anymore. So that's sort of a, it's supposed to be an example of how the inner planets exert control over huge sections of the belt. That episode had one of the, the darkest moments of TV I've seen in a while. The uncle decides to spaces his nephew. Yep. Well, he's, he's saving him because he knows, he knows he's going to get blown up. He's, it's a suicide mission. He gives Diogo his suit and puts him outside with the emergency beacon turned on, hoping somebody will come get him. And then he does his suicide run. We started talking about a little bit about the politics. And, and this, this question is, is from Annalee. She wants to know, basically, did Trump create the Belters? So maybe, <laughs> maybe to expand on that a little bit. There have been some interesting work from um, Greg Rucker and William Gibson recently with things like Lazarus and the Peripheral that have kind of extrapolated out the oligarchy trajectory that we appear to be on. 
does the way our planet is turning out at the moment is that influencing you know how we get to the to the expanse well you have to understand we were writing this in what 2009 2010 to start mm -hmm. with the idea of an oppressed economic underclass who are responsible for providing minerals and labor in horrible and stressed circumstances for the benefit of a distant ruler and distant economy that's just history we could be talking about the future we could be talking about right now we could be talking about the 1920s we could talk be talking about the 1650s yeah, we had a lot of conversation about the fact that, Daniel and I, about the fact that the belters are really just a stand-in for African countries that have valuable mineral resources. Mm -hmm. You know, we, there's, there's African countries that, that have these rare earth minerals that you can't find anywhere else that are extremely valuable. The money that comes from pulling those things out of the ground certainly does not go to the citizens of those countries. I mean, they live in horrible, abject poverty, and it's also, you know, we can have cell phones. So that's just a that's just a fact of our current reality, like Daniel said. Another question. This is from my colleague Sarus, and something that my colleagues have previously done um, an event with with Nick Farmer. And one of the things I think that's interesting about the books, and that, that particularly about the TV shows, is the Belter patois or language. So Sarus is wondering if Nick Farmer's vision of the language Belter language is is kind of what you thought it should be. And also, I guess he, he's curious why you made the decision with the TV show not to subtitle or explain any Belter Patois. Well, that, that was something that we had a lot of conversations about. But what we all agree on is in that we use the Patois a lot less often in the show than we do in the books. Mm -hmm. When we use it, we very deliberately use it to exclude someone. And in some cases, the person being excluded is the audience. It's, it's a way of making a culture feel very foreign and alien. Mm -hmm. And if you subtitle it, you lose some of that. Now, the other side of that is we never put any information in that the Belter uh, scenes where they're speaking the heavy patois. We never put any information there that the viewer needs. Uh, we never put anything in there that uh, they're going to be lost in the show without. But it is, it is deliberate to sort of push them back and say, you're not part of this culture, you're not part of this world, because that is how that world works. You know, the Belters are a separate group. They are sort of this subculture in the solar system and very deliberately use the Patois to keep the inner planets people out of their business. As far as, you know, Nick's version of the Patois versus ours, Nick's is just way better. You know, he's a linguist. He knows what he's doing. He has put together this beautiful construct and following the etymologies that he's using and finding the depth of analysis that he's poured into it has been tremendous fun. The stuff we have in the book, you know, we've cobbled together ourselves, we're not linguists, and we've used it for that kind of literary effect of distancing people from characters or bringing them in, just the way we do in the show. But as far as making a language, Nick's just knocked that out of the park. Another thing I find really cool is the spread of accents that you get across the belt, which I assume you would have to if people are, you know, you have families living on ships that might not see other people for, you know, weeks at a time. You know, I guess you would assume that you would have thousands of, of different regional accents pop up. And one of the things we were trying to do with all of these factions, with all of these people, is not have the kind of Star Trek thing where everybody on the planet wears the same clothes and thinks the same thing and mm -hmm. looks the same way. We wanted to make it very clear that all of these cultures are complex and rich and none of them are monocultures. All of them have divisions within them. 
All of them have diversity within them. None of them are monolithic. None of them are cut and dried. Right. Yeah, and it's and that's something that you really saw a lot of in written science fiction, but in TV and movies, I think the shorthand of the monoculture is is very appealing to people who are creating TV shows and movies. Mm-hmm. It's just easier to slip into that like everybody from Planet X all has the same attitude on everything just because it's easier to explain it you you have 40 minutes to tell a story you don't want to spend 20 of it explaining the various cultures on planet x right. i totally get that but for our particular project it was really important that daniel and i thought it was really important and unfortunately everybody else agreed with us that we never slip into that people say well it seems like the opa doesn't agree with each other and and they'll say well yeah but there's hundreds of factions in the opa they all call themselves opa they all want different things they all have different means of trying to get those things, and that constant friction in the groups is what creates fun stories. I mean, part of the kind of the deep project that we're working on is the argument that there are good and bad people on all sides of an issue. Mm-hmm. If all of the Martians are good, if all of the Earthers are bad, if all of the Belters are oppressed, that's not what people feel like to me. That's not familiar to me. I'm much more familiar with a world where there are people who are absolutely my political enemies who are genuinely good people. And there are absolutely people who are allies of mine politically who are just terrible human beings. And any slice I make of humanity has a pretty consistent percentage, a pretty consistent ratio of good people to jerks. Mm-hmm. After the last couple of books, I've had to force myself to, to remember that not all belters are terrible. I have a bit of an earth bias reading, reading the last couple. There were a lot of people who saw the rocks come down in Nemesis and the belters cheering and will never forgive them. And for me, you know, those guys were cheering because they were part of a completely different narrative in which something just and good and glorious and right had just happened. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm seeing that now post-election. I'm seeing that here in the U.S. I'm seeing it in the U.K. with Brexit. I'm all of these things where if this event meant the same thing to these different people, maybe they would have the same reaction to it. But these things mean different things. They are part of different stories. And within the story that somebody else has, the event that horrifies me can delight them. It doesn't mean they're a bad person. It means they're seeing something I'm not seeing. They have a context I don't have. They have an experience I don't have. And that's an important distinction. Is it fair to say that, that science fiction is a good genre to kind of explore those themes? Absolutely. Do it kind of much more safely than discussing current geopolitics? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things we talked about at length before we even began the project was that one of the themes we were exploring was racism. And we're doing it without using what we currently think of as races. Mm-hmm. So it, it gave us freedom. You know, uh, one of the things you have to be really careful about when you're exploring somebody else's experience is that you don't, you know, you don't trivialize their experience or you don't turn it into story fodder without really respecting what it's like to go through that. If you're a, not a member of a particular ethnic group, there is a great danger in discussing that ethnic group's experience of things like racism. Mm-hmm. But by creating totally new groups, Earthers and Martians and Belters and people from Ganymede, we could talk about how racism exhibits in those different groups. And we're not talking about a group that actually exists. We're not using someone else's actual pain and experience to tell a fun story, right. which, you know, you got to be really careful about that. Yeah, it is kind of a, it is kind of a dick move. 
it's like, oh, well, it's been really hard for black women in America. I will appropriate that and make a cute little story. Look what I've done. Yeah, you, Me. you should be really careful with that. And so it let us do some things that we couldn't otherwise do. It let us explore jingoism without actually pointing the finger at anybody in particular's country and making them the bad guy. Yeah, being able to get out of context in order to talk about this stuff lets you see things that are very hard to see when the context is is overlaying it. That's kind of sparks another question, which which brings me back a little bit to to kind of the differences between doing stuff in print and then working on the screen. Are there some aspects of telling the story that are harder with the constraints of, of a TV show? And I'm thinking here about showing the, the physical differences between belters and earthers, for example, because presumably without an unlimited special effects budget, you know, it's very difficult to have eight foot tall humans with enormous heads and skinny little limbs. There are absolutely things that are harder. There are also things that are way easier. There are things that are very difficult to do in print that come very quickly and easily when you have visual effects and a score, uh, actors who are able to emote and kind of give all of the physical cues that we're trying to get across by describing them in little bits of black ink on paper. It's just a completely different toolbox. Right. Part of that too, and this this was an early conversation we had as well, there was a real danger because everything, you know, in visual medium, everything is, is a shorthand for something else. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we wanted to avoid is this idea of monocultures. Even if we could afford to make every single belter seven or eight feet tall and, and skinny as a stick with a big head, we run into a real problem of turning them into another monoculture. They're like all of a sudden, that just becomes the shorthand. All the belters look like that, right. and wind up in this sort of Star Trek bumpy forehead aliens territory that we wanted to avoid. So, in some ways, it actually the limitations of the special effects and the budget works to our advantage. Works to our advantage. Yeah. yeah. Are you guys happy with the way that the the various ships and space stations all turned out? Are they what you were imagining when you wrote the books? No, it's not exactly what I pictured, and that in many cases that's a good thing. The truth is, you know, when you get into actually making a TV show, you're just one of dozens or hundreds of people working on it. And it's such a cutthroat business mm -hmm. that the one thing you can be sure of is almost everyone there is extremely good at their job or they wouldn't be getting those jobs. Right. And so, you know, you sit down with the art department with, you know, the art director or the production designer and you tell them what you think it would look like and then they come back with their sketches. Of course, they're putting themselves into that. But the one thing I'm sure of is that those people are much better designers than I am. So they bring stuff in it and you just have to know that they're probably going to bring you stuff that was cooler than the thing you said. Yeah, and the, the thing that Ty especially was able to bring to it was really describing the constraints that it was working under and the space that the ships were going to be kind of existing in through design. But the solutions to those problems and how to work within those constraints, I think the team has done an amazing job. It, it looks really cool. Yeah, I mean, the truth is their Tycho station is much cooler looking than my Tycho station. <laughs> my Tycho station was functional, but it just didn't look cool. Theirs looks cool. Their Tycho station is awesome. Yeah. Okay, so I've got time for one last quite daft question. Are there cats in the belt? We've seen sure. birds on yep. space stations, but are there cats in space? I'm sure there are cats in space. I'm sure there are cats running around on those space stations. I, I don't think cats would love zero-g. No, like I, you know, actually I've asked NASA on more than one occasion if I can take one of my cats into the vomit comet, and, and they keep telling me, no, that's not gonna happen. But when you have your own ship, nobody's gonna stop you. There you go. Uh, and if, if Jules Pierre Mao decides he wants to take his cat into space, he's just going to do it. 
Yeah, yeah, I, but you know the big stations like Tyco and Ceres and, and places like that. You got to figure there's pets there. The other side of that is, of course, the cleanliness restrictions for uh, maintaining a viable atmosphere are a little stricter. So, well, we had rats on the Canterbury. Yeah, and we did have a rat on the Canterbury. That's right. Rats can live anywhere, though. I don't think they care. Rats and cockroaches. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for your time. This is a fascinating chat. I can't wait to see what happens with the rest of the books. I've been lucky enough to see the first four episodes of season two, which were outstanding. It's some of the best stuff on TV. Thank you. Keep up the good work. We will do our best. You too. Cheers. You've been listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast about all the television that we're obsessing about. So be here next week and we'll talk some more.